Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. Hey, we're coming to you today from Hooker, Oklahoma. Now, oh my, I'm going to use the phrase, he was a looker on the hooker, which means he couldn't hit the curveball. So all he did was look at that curveball. So I'm going to assume that's how Oklahoma came up with that name. They were dealing with curveballs. And so, Do you have any notion of where this city is located in the state? No idea. None. Okay. I've got to believe it's not a metropolis. I think I would be able to identify the majors. Okay. But I do probably believe it's a baseball town. And so the reference is the people in Hooker threw a lot of curveballs. And so they just decided to name the city Hooker. Yeah, you're making this up as you go. That's not the case. That was said to me. Don't be a looker on the hooker. That's right. Well, that's a baseball phrase. I recognize that. That's a baseball phrase. Hey, we want to thank Rich for being with us last week. I know you do, Bear, because both of you have been in the same profession, and a lot of what he was saying really ties into your own understanding and your desire to help us in this podcast really connect dialogue up with one-on-one relationships. So we certainly appreciate your involvement last week. But we want to move back to kind of group settings, or at least I'm going to take us back there and say that... One of the things that I want to talk about to executives and our listeners out there is when you're working in small group, what are the conditions necessary for dialogue to even occur? And I think it's really important for us to know these. And if you've been listening in and saying, you know, I I think this dialogue is the right idea. I'm convinced of it. I buy into what you're saying. I bought into it before you guys even start talking. But now, what are the conditions that we have to have in order for dialogue to really be able to exist on a sustained basis? Because previously we've said it's delicate. (laughs) Say fragile. Say fragile. fragile. It's delicate and fragile. We know the dialogue is hard to sustain. But when we do it and we work at it, it has terrific payoffs. We've been saying that for three or four episodes now. So the four conditions, I think what I'd like to do is, again, for you and I, Bear, to kind of go through these, playing off of each other, exploring each one to a level of detail that we feel like, well, that should get it played out as well as we can. And the first condition is for team members or the people in the group to act like colleagues. And one of the things I'm going to say to that is in every organization we've worked with as consultants and every organization we've been in, there is a hierarchy. In fact, in most relationships, there is a hierarchy. I'm going to let you translate to this to individual one-on-one, but the parent-child relationship has a hierarchy to it. Doctor-patient relationship has a hierarchy to it. And in most organizations, when you meet in groups, there is inevitably a hierarchical distinction between the players in the room. And one of the things that has to be addressed and dealt with is this notion of hierarchy and its impact on dialogue. And the argument I'm going to make is that it restricts dialogue. It inhibits it. It causes it to be less readily available to us. So Ray, what would be your thoughts there on how do we reduce the impact of hierarchy in order to get to dialogue? Well, one of the things that uh, you and I have talked about before and I feel very strongly about is when the hierarchy is there, you can't eliminate it. You mm-hmm. can't just willfully or wishfully abandon it, okay? It's going to be there. And then like you've noticed with executives or I've noticed in doctor-patient relationship, that's a given. 
I mean, when a patient walks into a doctor's office, the doctor has kind of a preeminence. They have the status. They have the expertise. And so by definition, I'm the expert and you're the patient. Even if you Google your disease, I'm still the expert. And that status can't be given up verbally. Now, what what can be done is I can reduce the impact of it by not playing on it, by not implying I'm the doctor, you're the client, you need to listen to me. But by respecting the other person and demonstrating a regard for them, you can reduce that impact, the status of that difference. Same thing with being a parent. I mean, as a parent, I would never recommend that someone in trying to create dialogue with their son or daughter, child, that they give up their parental status, that they give up that role. You really can't. You are the dad. You are the mom. That's how they know you. But what you can do is you can speak in a more level tone. I mean, even get down to eye level, speak in words that are clear and understandable to the child and make sure you ask questions. One of the ways you level the playing field and that difference exists is to ask questions, which gives their their response some degree of priority and, and significance. And by doing that, you reduce that sense of difference. Mm-hmm. You know, even as you were saying that, I was going to ask you the question. So how do we then reduce that difference. And you've already identified several ways of doing that in the one-on-one relationships. One of the things that I remember doing with directive leaders is to encourage them to find ways that they can get others to push back against them, to just invite them to push back, to, to tell them that you expect them to engage in this conversation. And even though you are the CEO, you are the senior vice president, you recognize that those titles exist. This is a conversation you want to have where you encourage them to get more engaged and to take some risks. Now, on the other end, I would even say, and I'll come back to more of this, the person who is in the low status position, we've been kind of addressing the people who are in the high status or in the superior position, people who are in the subordinate position or in the low status position, what do you think they have to do in order for dialogue to work? Because they have a role too. It's not just the senior person or the person who's higher in the hierarchy that has a role, but the lower people have a role. Any ideas there, what you would recommend? Yeah, I think that your original comment goes both ways. They have to treat those people as equals. Mm. Part of the goal is to get people to treat each other as equals and eliminate those variances based on title and position and say your role, if you're not in the superior position, if you're in the reporting position, is to treat that other individual, that leader, like an equal, Mm -hmm. which is to say to show them regard, respect, reduce any animosity and to step up. Mm -hmm. I mean, not to lay back, not to be in the background, but to step up. The other thought I have is that I inevitably hear people say that the problem they have with stepping up is they feel at risk, that there is a sense of risk involved. And so one of the things I often say is if you want dialogue to occur and you're the subordinate, you're the person who's not in the superior position, then you're going to have to be willing to take a risk because dialogue does involve some risk. Your hope is that by you taking the risk and stepping up just a little doesn't have to be huge, but stepping up just a little. And if the, the person with the superior position in the group is willing to open that conversation and be more open and treat you more as an equal, then the potential we have is to increase that conversation in very dramatic ways. I just often find that risk is a big deal here for people who are not the executive. Well, it is, Bob. And I think the thing I heard you saying earlier that's important on the executive's part is that he gives those people who are re- reporting permission. I mean, it's a verbal permission to not uh, restrict their input, 
not restrict their contribution based on any difference in the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And people are more willing to take a risk, doesn't mean they will, but more willing to take a risk if the person who could uh, put them at risk gives them permission to take the risk. Well, let's go to number two, because this is an easy one to run out of time on. The first condition is that team members act as colleagues, that we have to address the hierarchy, that we have to mitigate the differences between us in order to create a more common, equal footing. The second condition is that we have to suspend assumption. And one of the things we often say is we're not asking for people to suppress their assumptions or to dismiss their assumptions or to deny them, which is oftentimes what people think they're being asked to do. Are you telling me I can't have this assumption? Well, no, we're not telling you that. We're telling you, you simply have to suspend them. You have to keep them in some kind of suspension in order to hear what other people are saying. Buy into that? What would be your take on that? Absolutely. I think the most difficult thing to deal with in dialogue is opinion. Mm. And if people aren't willing to suspend those opinions in face of trying to get to facts, get to legitimate ideas that will work, uh, the dialogue won't occur. So people do need to not eliminate, eradicate what their opinions are or what their positions are, but hold them in a suspended state so that they don't begin to contaminate the conversation. Mm -hmm. One of my views as a way of making this operational is for people to present their ideas in ways that they can be challenged. One of the techniques you would best use in conversation is if you choose to ask a question, how would you view this idea? You must commit yourself to not breaking the silence. Hmm. Hmm. You must choose to wait until someone gives an answer. Because what people begin to recognize is if you're going to give your own answer, then why should I take the risk? Mm -hmm. If you've already got what the answer is and you're drawing me in with the question, then if I know you'll break the silence, then I'll reach out. So I think the idea of being committed, if you know your style, if you know that people think of you in that light, then when you ask a question, if you inquire, you do have to wait until someone else responds. You know, what's interesting about that to me, Bears, the execs that I've worked with, they often are very impatient and don't wait. Silence to them is, if not the worst thing in life, the next worst thing in life. I mean, it's just not, it's difficult for them to remain silent when they want things to happen. That is one of the dilemmas with dialogue. And even as you're saying it, I remember now with certain execs, they would say, the problem with this dialogue business is it just takes too long. We can't wait here forever. We got to get moving on. And again, it's that impatience or it's that feeling that in order for this to unfold, it takes a certain amount of time. And so what I'm hearing you say is from the executive perspective, that is going to be one of the behaviors you're going to have to display is when you ask a question, you have to be willing and patient enough to wait for the response and not to fill that void yourself. Exactly. Well, maybe another one to go on to, we've had four conditions. We've addressed two. The third condition is is there has to be a spirit of inquiry and reflection, that we can't go into a conversation and call it dialogue until we sense that people are genuinely beginning to inquire and reflect. And that goes back to a lot of things we've talked about in the last couple episodes about the notion of asking questions, that what we would expect to see in dialogue is more questions, is that you have to probe beneath the smooth surface. Talk to me about your perspective on that. How do you even do that? I, I really like that word, your introduction to the word probe. It's a different kind of question. People can ask questions where they just want simple answers. Mm-hmm. They want the right answer. They want an immediate answer. Where a probe, by very definition, means we're looking for, we're exploring, we're investigating. We don't know the right answer. If I'm probing, I don't know the right answer. So I, I love the idea that 
the nature of the inquiry is to probe beneath any kind of smooth surface. Not that you're looking for trouble or not that you're looking for conflict, but you're looking for what lies beneath the surface so that you can deal with everything that's there. Too often people's solutions, when we call them surface solutions, is because they never probed any further than to get the quickest, most immediate answer. So I, I really like that word. That if you're going to ask questions, let them be probes. But think of yourself as being an investigator wanting to find something out, not as if you already know something and you just want to confirm it. Actually, I was thinking about you working a lot with docs. And I thought about, yeah, doctors are always probing. Now, I don't like them probing. <laughs> yes. They probe, particularly certain doc, right? Well, I think well, I think if it's a verbal probe, that's different. Yes, we'll leave it at that. But I do like your idea of probe. And it is a case that if you want this kind of conversation, you're going to have to go beyond the smooth surface. The thing I like about this is that inquiry can take us below the surface of things and can cause us to, to do it in such a way that reduces defensiveness. I keep going back and thinking, wow, the biggest thing that I connect with dialogue is when I watch dialogue actually occur. Very serious, crucial, powerful conversations are occurring without a lot of defensiveness. Well, how do you even get there? Well, I think you get there because inquiry becomes a major mode. Probing becomes a major mode. We're not assuming we know everything. We put our assumptions aside. So when you put all those pieces together, you say, okay, I can begin to see how this actually does function differently than other kinds of conversation. And so working at listening to ourselves as well as listening to others. And Bob, I think that our experience and our history would tell us that you can really see that difference. When people are listening uh, deeply to what others are saying, considering what they're saying, you can see that their behavior, their facial gestures, rapidness of their response, that they themselves speak more slowly, but they respond quickly. Mm-hmm. Those kind of behaviors indicate that dialogue is taking place. You can have, if I'm the one who's wanting to promote that dialogue, I'd want to see those things. I'd want to know what are the visible attributes of a dialogue being present. Those are the things you can watch for. You know, and even as you said that, the word that came to my mind for those who don't make these distinctions or have not really thought seriously about dialogue, one of the ways you really see dialogue occurring and the way we see it is the conversation is more animate. It's not one of these very relaxed conversations in which there are lots of long pauses and people looking up to the right or left and trying to figure out what to say or a lot of awkwardness. It's not that we shouldn't let silence be what it is and help us do the heavy lifting. But dialogue does seem to me to be quite an animated conversation. It gets people very involved. People are clearly engaged. And so it does take some level of animation and quick to respond, as you said. It's listening, but then there's a response or a further exploration or further probing tells me, hey, yeah, people are really involved here. We're getting quite enthused about this. And that's another indication that dialogue's occurring. Well, maybe the last condition, because we're running out of time, is that there needs to be the role of facilitator. Now, I've always found this interesting because people say, oh, so you're kind of justifying your employment as a consultant. You think everything's got to have a facilitator to it and you're it. My reaction is no, although I don't mind you paying me, but it's not that. It doesn't have to be a professional facilitator, although those are helpful and organizations have learned to use them, some more wisely than others. In order for dialogue to occur, someone has to be devoted to the process and thereby facilitating the conversation. Now, that can be a member of the group. Most often, I have found it's probably preferred not to be the senior in the room, the executive in the room. They often are the leader and therefore they think it's my meeting, I need to lead it. And that's okay if they're good at it. But so often they have such a particular bent on the topic that they end up restricting dialogue rather than promoting it. So it could well be that one of the 
operational behaviors, again, is you get someone else in the group to really be committed facilitating the conversation. Thoughts on that about the role of facilitator? Well, as you say it, and I try to make application to a one-on-one conversation, this is the most difficult thing to pull off. Because in one-on-one, if you're the one committed to making sure dialogue takes place, you have to be both a participant and facilitator. You can't expect the other person to monitor the process. So for me, this is probably the most difficult and critical element of trying to pull off dialogue on a one-on-one basis, is I need to both monitor the process, be alert to course of the conversation, and engage as a full participant. So as I, I reflect on this condition, that would be the most difficult condition to me to meet of the four to make sure dialogue can take place in a one-on-one conversation. I think that's why oftentimes organizations will seek an outside facilitator because they realize that everyone who's involved in the conversation has a dog in the fight. They realize that people are really invested in this and therefore we need to get someone who's not invested in it in order to be focused on this process and help us through it. Now, my reaction would be that's a wise use of resources. On the other hand, it doesn't have to be an outsider, but the difficulty of being an insider is it really increases the amount of work you have to do as a person who does have a dog in the fight, and yet you're also now committed to facilitating the conversation. And you can't let your own self-interest and your interest of what you want to get accomplished override that ability to facilitate the process, that there really does need someone who can facilitate the process. And that also takes a certain skill level. It also takes someone who knows what are the behaviors that can facilitate a process versus what are the behaviors that shut a conversation down. Now, I think we've talked about these before, but any comments there on what you see to be the behaviors that would actually facilitate a dialogue versus behaviors that shut it down? Well, I think we've mentioned it several times. One of the behaviors that facilitate dialogue is your willingness to ask probing questions, your willingness to engage by inquiry, not by opinion, not by your own view, not by persuasion. And I think that's, to me, the key verbal behavior. I think in terms of nonverbal behaviors, making sure, (laughs) I'm laughing because I, I would think in counseling, there's something you're taught pretty quickly, and that is you never use demonstrative behavior when someone makes a statement. If they say, well, this happened, and your eyes go big, and you gasp, (laughs) you're giving away a certain kind of judgment. So what I was thinking in terms of dialogue is that you keep your behavior kind of in a moderate zone. You don't get real expressive with your behavior. I want to facilitate dialogue. One of the worst things I can do is amp up the energy in either a hostile fashion or even in an affirming fashion too early, even in an improving fashion too early, because then I'm influencing this in a way that probably is not to the, the benefit of the dialogue itself. And I would add to that two other behaviors that I I think you'd probably put in the category of verbal behaviors. One would be paraphrasing or reflecting that when you hear a comment made by a group member that you think is really important, particularly if it's a minor voice. And that's the other thing I would say in facilitating groups like this, you have to pay attention to everyone in the group. And as you get people who are reluctant to speak up, to try to draw them in by asking questions, as you said, or reflecting on comments that they've made so that they know they've been heard. And then the other one is summarizing. The thing that I find so fascinating in the groups that I've worked with is that we'll have an hour discussion, and in the last 30 seconds, someone will say, okay, can anybody summarize this meeting? Well, their answer is, are you kidding? How do you summarize an hour's conversation when we've gone all over everywhere? And so one of the things I found a good facilitator will do 
is about every five to 10 minutes, they're summarizing. So where are we? So what have you heard? So if I've heard several of you, here's what I see you agreeing on. And so all I'm doing in that summarizing is trying to take the pieces and bring them together so people now have an anchor. They have some way of anchoring the conversation so we can move forward. I think those are excellent points that are too easy to miss when you mention a minor voice and making sure that that's picked up. And when you mentioned summarizing before we've spoken so long that whatever's been said has gotten muddled to make sure that we can collect those ideas when they're fresh and put them in a spot that we can hold on to them. Mm -hmm. Those are critical to being successful. The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk 46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger, more complex, or more dangerous than it already is, almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the score that both began and ended this podcast. 